Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Julian McRae from Engage Britain, which is a leading public engagement charity. It's a bit different. Whilst Julian is not a frontline public service leader, it's really important that we understand how to think about and position important public service reforms. Public opinion and attitudes are important when it comes to public services. That doesn't mean services should give the public everything they think they want, but there is no doubt services are trying to become more customer-centric. Julian and I discuss public attitudes to public services. The Chancellor has promised us Scandinavian quality and Singaporean efficiency in our public services. That seems a tough one to achieve, so I asked Julian what people actually expect from the state. Public opinion on healthcare is a particular specialism of Julian's, and we get into some detail on attitudes towards health services, and in particular, how the health system interacts with individuals. Is it working? Finally, we talk about how to engage and connect people with public service reform. How do you get people interested in areas which they don't immediately see as relevant to them? So for this and more, keep listening. Julian, you're very welcome on the podcast. You and I know each other from our work on the Poverty Strategy Commission. But for those who don't know you, it would be great if you could just say a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I'm Julian McRae. Um, I run an organisation charity uh, called Engage Britain at the moment, uh, the purpose of which is to try and put people themselves with all the different knowledge, views and experience that they've got at the heart of throwing out solutions to the big policy challenges facing the country. Um, and my, my background has been in public policy for about 30 years now, which is somewhat scary uh, sort of number. Um, but I, I effectively worked in what you might describe is the evidence-based policy wave that hit about 20, 30 years ago, 
of the realization that actually analysis was really, really important uh, for yes. policymaking. Um, and you know, I worked at places like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, at the Treasury, uh, Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. Um, you know, just really doing some really in-depth policy analysis. Um, and my reason for actually running Engage Britain now is almost to sort of come full circle on that. Analysis might be really important, but sometimes too much policymaking, particularly at a national level, at a Westminster Whitehall level, um, tends to be dominated by analysis and not enough experience. People who really know what they're talking about and bringing those insights directly into finding solutions. So Engage Britain tries to do a lot more on that experience side. Uh, that's not to dismiss the analysis. Both are really, really important for great policy. And is that in the so is your your techniques are they surveys, focus groups, that type of thing? Yeah, what we do is I would describe it as sort of, you know, end to end policy making. Um, so, you know, things I would have done in a very analytic way when I worked at Cabinet Office and Treasury. You know, you start with what's the problem and then you work through what are the options to address this? What might work? You think a little bit towards the end about, well, where's the public coming from? And, uh, you know, does this sell in the media and stuff like that? Um, I suppose what we're doing at Engage Britain is, um, each of those stages, rather than there being a small group of uh, analytically minded people in a small room doing that, whether that's think tanks or government departments or wherever it is, uh, we try to use methods essentially of social science uh, to draw people in. Um, so, you know, some of this, um, I, I, one thing I would say we don't do is focus groups. We do okay. a lot of discussion sessions where people can listen to each other and respond to what other people are saying. So much more flowing conversational form. Uh, we use rather deep deliberative techniques. So you get people together on multiple occasions where they're thinking about something and then they come back and think about it a bit more, ask yeah. some evidence and draw in sort of viewpoints and just see what are the, what are the deep things that people return to. Uh, and we do do quite a lot of polling, some wiki surveys and stuff like that uh, at the more interesting end of the polling stuff, but we do quite a bit of uh, national polling as well. But really, it's putting those elements together and getting people who really know what they're talking about, talking to each other to help design uh, new policy solutions. That's what that's what we do. Very interesting. It sounds like we could have done with a, a bit more of that around the middle of this year uh, when some big policy decisions were being made. Yeah, well, it, it's kind of, it can be fascinating watching how policy comes into being. Um, and I think during this year we had it, we had an example of, you know, the intellectual side, very, very clear, but very little, surprisingly little thought about how people would react to that yeah. when it, when it came out. Um, and you normally politics actually does quite a, li a lot of that, uh, thinking. Um, and yeah, I, I, I find it quite fascinating that sometimes our, our political policy decisions sort of leave contact with the perceptions. Uh, it it, it felt, I think you're right, it felt very different. Normally there's a complete obsession over what the reaction to something might be, but it felt that that was just entirely missing. I'm doing some, some thinking at the minute around how you effectively, positively disrupt the public services. And I wrote a short piece on the lessons from Trustonomics and I mean, it's a it's it's a fairly long list, but uh, failure to anticipate even the basic questions that might be asked about the policy is right up there. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. And very, very close policy process. Uh, I mean, that yeah. is the if you if you think about it in the how you come up, come to this very small group, removing most challenge. Um, 
you know, he, not just the OBR figures and even the Treasury, you know, pound sack being sacked and things like that. Um, it's just, you know, those very close processes. Uh, there's a load of stuff in behavioral um, economics on this, which basically yeah. shows uh, just how much the you know groups where you think you've got a load of uh, you know people chiming in on different sides, they tend to end up in quite radical spaces. They tend not to reach markets, and so they tend to go off to extremes. And I think we saw that very much in that uh, process. Very small groups just absolutely pushing in one direction and just keep uh, going. Absolutely. So so let's. Fast forward through the trust era. So we're now in the Rishi Sunak era, Jeremy Hunt era, and in the autumn statement, the Chancellor promised us Scandinavian quality and Singaporean efficiency in our public services. Um, that seems like quite a tough one to achieve for me. I mean, a very, a very admirable aim, but a tough one to achieve. So, um, from your experience, what do people actually expect from the state, and are we on uh, a never-ending upward trajectory as far as expectations go. Uh, you know, do people really believe in the magic money tree and that they can just keep expecting more and more from the state? Well, I think that's a fascinating question, isn't it? Um, I think the thing I'd observe about the UK state is, well, certainly since the Second World War, it has expanded in ways that were not really conceived of before that. Um and most of that has built up political consensus. I mean, the 1945-48 government, you get you get really actually a fascinating joining of the political strands, traditions in the UK. You know, it's a, really a social liberal tradition that is behind Beveridge. He's part of that movement. Um, it's a kind of report that then gets taken up by the socialist tradition in British mm. politics and implemented by them, but then is run largely by the one nation tradition uh, of conservatism. Um, and, you know, it's that sort of you, you still see it in that part of the NHS, that free at the point of use language that people still use and still return to and almost think it's, you know, uniquely important, uniquely British. Um, you know, uh, I, I dislike people referring to the NHS as a religion uh, in the UK and therefore it can never be reformed because I think that's rather untrue. The actual NHS is a collection of institutions that we access People have very mixed views about their experiences when they when they're doing that. I'm very grateful to the staff who work within it, but very mixed views about the institutions. Uh, but the ethos of the NHS is certainly something that really lasts and endures in British politics. Uh, and if you go beyond that, I mean, we we've essentially I mean, you know, um, the slow increment in what people look to the state to do has been pretty continuous um, over yeah, the, right. the, the period following the war. You know, it, you know, people would observe that, you know, crime used not to be something that home secretaries did anything. You know, they weren't there to prevent crime. They were to make sure there was a police force there that was vaguely capable yeah. of doing stuff. Whereas now we would standardly say crime prevention is actually part of uh uh, the role of the state. Um, you know, and you, you, you go on and on. But the only area I can think of that the state has actually withdrawn from is really the funding of universities, uh, where it's yeah. fees and loans. And the state's still heavily involved, uh, but it created a fees and loans system, which um, have effectively moved the, the cost of university much more back onto the people going to university than was previously the case. That's the only area I can really think of that withdrawal. And that, that particular reform wasn't without casualties. You know, you've seen the impact on the, the Liberal Democrats and just how that uh, 
it seems to me that there is this constant continued growing expectation. It's a really good example. I hadn't thought of that when actually universities where the state is withdrawing, but gosh, it was not a bloodless reform. Yeah, well, certainly, certainly Lib Dems. So it, it, it would be interesting discussion because, of course, Labour introduced these first and then the Conservatives were the driving force in the coalition government through the expansion. Uh, yeah. But it's Lib Dems who were actually probably the most reluctant to move down that road, but seen as being, uh, you know, double standards yeah. on, on the on the piece. And it, it, I think it's arguable it wasn't actually the uh, tuition fees that cost them. It was the double standards perception that really, really got them. Um, but, you know, I, I think you're right. People are very wary. Politicians are very wary of withdrawing things that the public has come to expect. The problem with that is that we are still, you know, a lot of these services and particularly around health and pensions and things with an aging demographic and population. Uh, you know, they, we are just going to spend more on these things as a society. That's not yeah. really in question. Uh, what's in the question is, OK, well, how do we organise and structure that additional amount that society is paying? Do we do it through a tax system or do yeah. we do it through social insurance, much more tied to your use of services or indeed private um, provision um, inside that? And that 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 you see is the thing you can't get around. Yet our politics is almost wants to close its eyes and pretend that's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you uh, just going back to something you said earlier about how it, it wasn't maybe the actual policy itself that did for the the Liberal Democrats, but the perception that uh, they were going back in something that they previously said. And I, I've I have a similar thought about Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng that, of course, there are challenges with what they were proposing, but. Almost the bigger problem which rankled with a lot of people was the fact that they had no legitimacy to propose it because they, you know, Liz Truss had been elected by less than 100,000 people in a country of over 45 million voters. Um, so it, it's sometimes it's not the actual thing. It's the do you have the right to do this and are you being are you being uh, authentic in doing it? Yeah, and I think that's you know the. Another thing that was fascinating about that period was the actions were all taken. It almost is in the belief or perception of a, a position of great political strength, yes. uh, when in fact it was a position of great political weakness for all the reasons you've, you, yeah. you've sort of outlined uh, about mandate, about you know not having the support of their own uh, their own backbench and, and, and things like that, and a, a very narrow base for a cabinet. Uh, across the Conservative Party. Uh, yeah. So for all kinds of reasons, massive weakness, but portrayed as massive strength. And I think it's one of those slightly ironic things. Uh, well, it, it demonstrates that in politics, simply behaving as though you have a strong position does not mean you get a strong position. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, so let's try and think about some of the lessons and kind of things here, because a lot of the listeners of this podcast are working in local government, local NHS organisations and, and in central government. But if, if we think about the, the, the kind of politicians at, at a local level, this um, need to reform from a place of legitimacy and strength is, is really important. So what would you say are, are the fundamentals on which any reform at a national or local level need to be based well, I think there's a massive difference between how we approach reform at the national and the local level. Um, now, I haven't I haven't worked in local government myself. I've worked with many, many brilliant people who've worked in local governments. Um, 
And I've always thought the job is actually so much tougher uh, because, you know, um, and in some ways so much more rewarding because you're at a cusp where you actually see the services in action. Yeah. Um, you know, the way of approaching problems when done well is really about you you can collect the views and the experiences of people who are using those services. The people who are running them are very much involved in what's happening about their future. Um, it's not made straightforward by not having control over finances and <laughs> tax raising powers and things like that and borrowing powers, many things that we talk about. Um, but, you know, the, the nature of reform is much more collegiate and officials are much more frontline inside yes. you know they are they are advising in public and they are um you know accountable to local communities in ways that civil servants in whitehall are simply not yes um the national reform uh, i mean there are exceptions there are always exceptions to this uh, but you know that top-down reform imposed on a set of institutions is really the specialism of the uk state uh, i sometimes think if you look at if you think about schools particularly the nhs um you know but further education, loads of different areas, it would seem that we don't really believe there's any one way of organising, if you like, the intermediate structures between Whitehall and the rest of the country. Um, just so long as we reform them once every two or three years, we abolish one set of institutions and bring in a new set of institutions. Um, that's the that's the key way we should do it. Oh, and by the way, we'll we'll do that in each of the silos. So if you happen mm-hmm. to be working in local government, you'll watch the NHS structures are changing. Uh, they're overlapping with some council structures we introduced previously that would go into well-being and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, we've got a concept of care and integrated care, but not necessarily integrated institutions. So, you know, all of these things keep going and keep changing around the state. Uh, my, my personal view is they're a little bit of a displacement activity because really what matters is what's happening in the classroom, what's happening in the hospital, what's happening you know, right at the immediate place where people are um, experiencing services. And actually, Whitehall has virtually no control over those things. It has control about institutions that it can create and destroy, um, yeah. but it doesn't really control that very immediate experience. So so what sort of things should people be thinking about if they want the reform to land well? Well, I, I my personal take on really good policy is that it always starts with values. Um, and, you know, that's the the thing we spend quite a bit of time at Engage Britain thinking about, you know, well, what is the thing that matters to people themselves in their own lives that they really care about and can get behind that can be expressed very, very quickly. Uh, now, working on health and care, it's actually relatively, well, it's two edged sword because, you know, some of the values are very, very clear. It's that free at the point of use access for people who are most vulnerable, that they should be receiving treatment. Um, the slight problem with that when you get to social care, as many people will know, there's a general assumption or a lack of knowledge about how social care is funded and an assumption that it's already funded free at the point of use and uh, for people who haven't experienced the system, um, which gets you massively in the way of reform. Um, mm. So, you know, you've got to be very careful about those visions uh, that people have. I talk a lot when we do work on housing. Uh, every policy um, uh, person I know, well, actually, with exception of one or two, but basically believes that uh, UK has too few houses inside it need to build more housing. Um, and, you know, therefore, the policy job is to convince the public and the politicians that we need to build more housing. Um, if you actually do some work with the public on this, you'll find about a quarter of the public will prioritise build more housing uh, out of a set of options. Uh, but three quarters won't. Uh, and it's not because 
those people don't understand the implications of a vertical supply curve on price and the economics of this. They don't appreciate the economics of it. They're not that interested in the economics of it. But that's not the driving force here. If you take that into discussion, you'll find that people tend to be very sceptical about government building housing that is of good quality in places they'd actually want to live and or building housing. You think government will build housing for the very rich or the very poor, but not for people like them. So mm. and actually, if you look at target based um, approaches to house building, they're probably quite right. We tend to build the wrong type of housing, not necessarily suiting the local community. Um, so if you want to, it's not about more housing. It's about it's about decent, good quality housing for you know people like me. Um, yeah. And if you haven't made that part of the argument, you just dive into we need to have house targets, house building targets, and it's numbers that matter. You've missed most of the politics of what's going on. So really I think there's, there, there are there are things where we have policy consensuses where we miss the arguments we have to win with the public and how you have to go about um, doing that is very different if you're trying to win a uh, you know this is going to be good quality for people like you. It's just done in a different way. To this is just well, this is where. This is where the real skill as a political leader comes in, isn't it? That you you understand how to sell a possibly difficult proposition to to people by connecting it to them and their lives and why it will make their lives better. And there just seems to be a real a real paucity of that sort of skilled political thinking at the minute. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too far into critiques of politicians. I, I, I'm passionate. No, 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 that, no. This isn't. That's not what yeah. this is about. So yeah. No, 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 no. But it's, I, I was going to say, it's, it, it, and my personal view is that most politicians I've ever worked for are in politics to see real change, mm-hmm. and you know they're actually really, really impassioned by it. Um, they still know that they're working in a system, and they can be deeply frustrated by it. You know, where uh, yeah. media coverage is vital and important. What I think is really at the heart of some of this, though, there's, there's sort of two things. One is how much our political system generates people who actually represent the groups who really need change. Uh, and sometimes they represent political parties and political infrastructure. But then that's always been always been true. Uh, what I think is can be more difficult is the degree to which we're cynical about our own public. Um, go back to things like health. Um, you know, that I was talking earlier about the degree to which. Um, yeah, we are going to be spending more as a society on health and care because it's simply we've got an aging demographic. And that's before you bring in new technologies, which actually cost more money to yeah. run and extend life. So you end up treating people for longer, actually. So these are cost drivers to us. Yeah, we're going to spend more. Actually, if you take any group, and I've done a lot of them over the years, uh, sitting with members of the public discussing well, what's going to happen, uh, they're very, very clear. You know, we're going to be spending more. People are getting older. They, that argument is accepted. It's very straightforward. Um, the principle, we do health treatment in this country free at the point of use. Uh, that means we pay for it through taxation. That means taxes are going to go up. That is not a contentious set of arguments at all. Is it? Is it really? One of my, I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was whether people really felt like we're all in it together and are people in general prepared to pay more for better services for other people? Well, actually, I think it all depends on where you think the moral starting point is. And as mm. on health in this country for you know over 70 years, we actually have a really, really strong moral consensus. It's quite different to many other uh, public service areas. Um, and there, yes, you can win that argument very quickly. Whose taxes are going to go up and by how much? 
tends to be where you start to get the differences. But I mean, I think it's, you know, eminently clear that, you know, um, earlier this year, we introduced the health and care levy. I was going to ask about that, because what you're saying leads to that, which is now gone. But yeah, it led to that. And it's a fascinating piece of politics because it yeah. was um, sort of, I mean, you know, Gordon Brown had done that 20 years earlier when he increased national insurance uh, around 2002 for the NHS. Uh, that was one of the most popular budgets um, of the last uh, few decades uh, when Brown did that tax increase. And to my mind, you know, the polling has always been very strong for the health and care levy. Uh, it's never actually been a political, it wasn't a political liability to the government when it was actually brought in. Uh, relatively minor um, sort of uh, repercussions. It did, though, then get dragged into party politics uh, and internal leadership uh, politics. So it becomes about the only tax increase that got reversed um, as a result of the mini budget. Uh, Which, based on what you've just said, is ridiculous, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I, I personally think that what you've seen was actually an attempt to face up to the fact that we are going to tax more around health and care going forward, we, uh, unless we want to change the moral consensus and we want to change how we fund health and care. And that's perfectly viable as a political thing. Uh, the only system that we know really you should never go for is the US system where private insurance dominates, where costs are extraordinarily high for relatively limited coverage. Um, so, you know, don't, don't go down that US system. But there's lots of other systems around the world which place much more connection between the treatment you receive and the insurance pay, uh, amounts you pay um, rather than doing it totally through direct taxation. Um, but if we stick with the moral consensus we currently have in the UK, and it's very strong, then it will be a tax driven piece. And what we've been doing by disguising this, the fact that we essentially got this cuckoo in the nest of public expenditure and particularly the hospitals, which tend to get most of the money just because of the way we've been running spending reviews recently and the structure of NHS England gives it huge amounts of lobbying power. Uh, and it lobbies generally on behalf of uh, hospitals, acute care uh, sort of side. Um, we, we end up squeezing the rest of our public services to make room for keeping this health bit in without seeing the taxes rise to actually fund it. And that's that's a a pathway that has, you know, you can't keep going down that pathway forever. And we're actually, and we're seeing that in a lot of public service areas where it's difficult to see where the next round of efficiencies would come from, uh, or cuts, if you want to call them that. Um, and actually, even within that hospital sector, the fact that so little has been put into the things that are around hospitals, particularly the care sector, you yeah. can't get people out of hospitals, therefore you can't get people into hospitals, therefore you've got the ambulances queuing. We just have got the allocation of our resources so wrong, let alone the level of them, but the allocation of them so wrong in the last let, let me ask you about adult social care then, because I agree that it never gets prioritised and it's always one of those things which is squeezed, but actually it's the very service that is the pressure valve that would help the NHS. But why why is it that politicians feel so... Uh, politicians and leaders, the civic leaders, feel so strongly about protecting NHS budgets, but actually other things like adult social care, it, it, it seems easier to squeeze those. Is it because as we sit here today, um, you know, we, I could break my leg later on today and I might need the NHS, but it's going to be a number of years before I need to go into a care home. So I'm not thinking about that. 
Yeah, I think there is something in that. Uh, we did quite a big deliberation around health and care recently. We were just getting people together over a series of weekends and just seeing what they really prioritised. You know, at least they were listening to arguments. They were asking for evidence from uh, experts, from people who had experienced um, sort of different things around health and care. But it's still that discussion uh, slightly. To, I was I'm disappointed is the wrong way to talk about how people really think. But, uh, you know, it went back to that treatment and that access to treatment. And it is one of the things I think people often get wrong when they talk about the ethos of the NHS. Sometimes we want to hear that it was about we should have equality of healthy living or something along those lines. That was never what the NHS consensus was about. It still isn't what it's about. It's mm. about access to treatment. That very base sense of security that for you and your loved one, in that moment when you need to be treated, you clinically need that assistance, you can get that treatment. And that treatment will not be barred from you because you can't afford it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the heart of you know the NHS ethos. Um, and that the embodiment of that is interestingly the hospital, obviously. And when we were doing work a couple of years ago, you've got these two different experiences of the NHS in the public. What I describe as the blue light experience, where you're coming in as an emergency, you're moving into relatively well-funded hospital settings. You're immediately interacting with the people who are giving you care. The nurses and the doctors there are known to you. And that experience was you know, very highly rated. Um, yeah. The experience of the NHS coming in through different routes, particularly with multiple chronic conditions and you know, if having care needs, mental health needs and physical needs, we were talking to totally different institutions, none of whom really coordinated or integrated. Very, very different experience. Much yeah. less, much more people talking about fighting the system, not knowing where to turn. Very, very difficult. So until recently, we've kind of had that blue light system working which is how a lot of people experience the NHS and where actually that that moral consensus, they want to know the blue light system works. We're now, I mean, tragically, really tragically at a point where the blue light system doesn't work in large parts of the country now, you know, and that's, you know, becoming utterly endemic in the system. And that, that I think, I hope will draw people into, well, what do we have to do for the whole system to get it working, to make sure that it works through? And as you say, you know, one of the problems with social care is almost the name social care. Um, it's very difficult for people to get their heads around what are these services, what's this collection of things that they're looking at. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. I think that's a, a, a really good analysis of the situation we find ourselves in. Across the country, uh, there's the current set of health and care reforms where there's integrated care systems, integrated care boards, integrated care partnerships. And these are uh, these involve NHS organisations and councils as well, primarily other other actors as well. But um, there is an opportunity to do things a bit differently. And I, I know that you're particularly interested in how the health system interacts with individuals. So what should these leaders be thinking about now that they have this opportunity, at least on 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 paper, an opportunity to do things a bit differently. What should they be thinking about? Yeah, no, I think, I, I mean, <laughs> top-down reforms of the NHS, I've, I've always thought is always dangerous. Uh, so we've got integrated care systems in, into integrated care boards. Um, the one thing I'd say about the reform system is, can we just please keep these structures for about a decade or maybe two decades so we allow them to mature and grow and figure out what they're doing? I mean, I do think that concept is exactly right. Um, how much 
the really big opportunity, and you can see this in the different, you know, each of the boards is operating quite differently in different parts of the country, often driven by as much the personality of the individuals involved. But that sort of joint endeavour of people coming together, thinking we can solve things for our local community is absolutely critical um, to many of these integration pieces. Um, the there's a there's a little bit of evidence. It's not it's not that robust, but I'm pretty certain it's true um, that just compares pool budget systems where people come together to put their budgets into a pot to solve a problem. If the pool budget has been formulated top down, it's an imposition by the Treasury and it forces people into a room. They virtually never work. They just become a bickering shop where everyone wants their money back. When the pool budget is formed by people who hold budgets themselves coming together as the leaders to try and make a difference, it's an incredibly powerful mechanism. So the, you know, the, the integrated care systems and boards, it's not so much that we've created this institution that brings people together into a room. It's going to be, do the local leaders feel this is a room we can use to really make a difference for our population? And that will be the key distinguisher, I think, as to whether they, they really start, those ones which really start pooling resources, really start being a forum where you can link up systems and make sure things are actually working practically on the ground. Um, and those which will just stay in the, you know, yet another set of acronyms that we've added in to institutions that, you know, people who've worked in this area can tell you, oh, yes, that's exactly the same as XYZ a few years ago. And actually got the same people involved in it doing the same things. But yeah. we do like to change these things up. So I think that's the. That's the starting point for this. But the opportunity is huge because people yeah. experience the system not as this is the NHS, this is care, this is the, they experience this and I've got a set of needs. I really, really just want someone to help me at this point. Um, and I really don't care who they work for. Uh, and yeah. I really like it if they knew, if they not the person I should be talking to, they actually knew how to get me to the person I should be talking to, as opposed to what too many people experience is don't know where I'm supposed to be but I'll just get passed randomly around the system and it's deeply frustrating that's and deeply really, emotional. That's really interesting because you're absolutely right. People care about their own personal journey and when they're in the midst of a crisis or in the midst of receiving treatment, they don't really want name badges on someone as long as they're, they're getting what they need. But remove them from, from that crisis and the NHS is there as the, I know you said not to use the religion term, but people do use it and it is that kind of, uh, uh, institution that's not to be challenged and it, it does put pressure on other things like we've talked about adult social care I, I'm very interested in children's social care as well and I just wonder is there you know is there anything to say about how leaders or what leaders can do to try and connect important other public services like adult social care and children's social care with people rather than just the ones that are on a pedestal like the NHS, because these are really important services as well, and they're always getting squeezed. Yeah. And interestingly, the thing we found that played out when we were doing some deliberative work on around care, um, I thought there might be a big discussion. Um, some of the countries have done this about, you know, how we want to live in our frail old age. And can we get a societal discussion uh, around that and then help reform systems once you've decided what we're trying to achieve? Or, you know, it's one of the things about social care, because, of course, part of it coming from the NHS often talks about people in social care as being patients when actually quite a lot of social care is going to people who have profound impairments, uh, physical yeah. or mental. 
uh, who are not patients in any sense. This is about support for them leading an independent life. Yes, um, this and, is their yeah. life. This is their yeah. continuing life. It's not just a, a crisis moment for them. Yes, exactly. And, you know, this will, this is about independence and about yeah. uh, being able to live best life possible. And actually, as a society, we take that really far, far more seriously than we ever have in the past. Um, so, you know, there's actually a kind of noble element to what we're attempting to do. But again, neither of those things really people came back to. They didn't disagree with those viewpoints, but they weren't really the type of things that were seizing them and they were coming back to um, in discussion. The one thing that they did come back to was actually carers. Um, okay. And it was quite an interesting, going back to, you know, there's got to be values at the heart of everything. Uh, the thing that played out was that carers were not receiving, were not being valued as they should be. This is a kind of fundamental, um, there's a load of work on Jonathan Hyatt and people like that write about moral foundations of political decision making, care and concern for those who dedicate their life to giving care to others is a really strong one. So when people realise that, you know, you don't, if you're a carer, you will receive after about five years, you get about six pence more an hour than you would have got if you just had one year's experience. Um, that's partly because we've been pushing up the minimum wage, but it still was struck people as just incredibly unfair, unjust, wrong. An injustice was going on there. Um, and it was also a sort of sense of people realising that the more you squeeze the carer's job, the more you weren't, they weren't people who could give care. So what they really cared about was not just carers is going back to, you know, I was talking earlier about housing and people actually wanted good quality housing and just extra units of housing. Wasn't it's the same with carers. What people care about is can you bring in people who've got a vocation for caring uh, and allow them to work in ways that they can build relationships with the people they're caring for. Uh, and that actually has huge, huge uh, traction inside the uh, deliberations we're doing. In the polling we've done around that, it's strong, but it's not as strong as the you know, hospitals really care about. But you can you can start to build an argument that actually is simple and straightforward to people, not around the funding structures and should we means test it and stuff like that. But the UK just needs more carers. We need more people who are able to look after people as they're coming out of hospital, but also make sure that those people don't end up going back into hospital again because they're not being looked after correctly. It yeah. takes you into a very particular part of the care, social care sector. But it is, to my mind, the root way around which the politics will gain traction because it's simple and easy for people to understand in a way that the means testing and the house interactions just is too complex for people to get their heads around. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, thank you very much for that. When we spoke, when we've spoken in the past, you've talked about this idea of anchor reforms as a as a central thing. Could you just say a little bit about that? Because I found that fascinating. Well, I think there's. I think when you're thinking about public policy, people often think that each policy should stand on its own. Uh, and, you know, you've got to get in front of mind to people that that's the thing you're trying to do. Whereas I think the way really good policies are made, they start with something which really captures the imagination and there are implications for that which follow on from it. So when, when taking social care again as, a, as an example on this, um, there is... There's a sort of argument, and it's, you know, there are lots of people out there, and they're quite right about this, that, you know, 
changing the way we talk about social care. That's about independent living and people being able to live their independent lives is really, really important. Um, but it has so little resonance in a political debate standing on its own. And that, as I said earlier, I mean, I think that's a, that, that's a really bad thing, but it is a thing. Yeah. Um, actually, the way you make the argument with people is almost through the hospitals are falling over. It's something that really, really matters. There aren't enough carers to look after people as they're coming out of hospital. And actually, we need carers who can provide support to people to live as good a life as they can, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, because they're in the frail old age or because, uh, you know, they need support to live independently. Um, and that chain of argument makes sense. It's quite quick. You can get through it. But it started with something which anchors it in how are we going to sort out hospitals and your access to treatment? And that's yeah. an incredibly powerful starting point. And I think if you miss those starting points with people or assume that you've got to create something just as strong out of your particular policy area that you're really interested in, you miss the fact that really good reforms sort of build on themselves. They start with that, but they bring people on a little bit of a journey into the things that they have to do to make a difference. Really good. I think there's there's learning there for policymakers at all levels just to make sure that you're connecting an idea with people's experience and what's important to them and what links with their values. So everything that you said, that kind of all draws it together, I think. Julian, as a final question, um, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector, charity, social enterprise, think tank, who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'd question how much impact I've actually actually had. I've well, I'm, I'm going to make that judgment, and I think that you have made a substantial impact. So, taking that as a, as a given, what that, that, what advice would you give? Thanks, Andrew. I mean, look, um, the, the advice I give is just trust people. I think that sometimes our public institutions, we often talk about it as being. You know, the public doesn't trust our institutions, whereas I think sometimes it's more that our institutions don't trust our public and don't trust our workers and don't trust the people in other organisations that we're dealing with. Um, just trust people, listen to what matters to them. Um, and when we build reforms, we don't build them out of our analysis or our thoughts. We build them out of, OK, well, what do these people want? What are they prepared to do? What are they what do they think the solutions are? And that that is just so much richer and so much more informative um, in my experience about what we need to do, what the right ways forward are and the things that might actually get some traction might actually happen. So that's my that that's my advice. Trust people, listen to them, um, understand that actually. You know, people out there do understand a lot of the trade-offs we deal with as policymakers. Um, you know, if you ask them very quickly in an opinion poll, they might say they want, yes, we want more spending and lower taxes. Uh, but actually, they're not fools. They don't really believe in magic money trees. Uh, yeah. And they ultimately know that we as a society are going to have to pay for the things that we want. Um, and, you know, they, they're prepared to build those arguments and listen to those arguments if they're made well. Fantastic. Really good advice there, Julian. Thank you. And thank you very much for your time. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Well, as a policy nerd, I found that fascinating. And there's tremendous insight into how policy research should work. And there are plenty of recent examples of how policy development hasn't worked at all. So um, lots of interest there. I think the first thing I would highlight is 
the idea that proper engagement requires some patience and discipline. Julian talked about asking people what they thought about something, then perhaps providing some additional information or time, and then asking them again. I don't think we see a lot of that. I think what we see are a lot of flash polls, which newspapers and news channels pick up on, which create unhelpful data, but maybe good headlines. The second point I would highlight is good policy starts with values. That should be the cornerstone of everything. So, so I think if something aligns with a set of values, then you already have the beginnings of an answer to pretty much any question about that policy. I particularly enjoyed the part of the conversation where we talked about the need to focus on a person's personal journey. Um, too often, the focus is on uh, an institution or a service or the preservation of that institution or service rather than what is it actually like as a user of this service. Because as we said in the discussion, we don't really mind what name badge or what organisation somebody has on as long as we're getting the help and support we need. The final point I wanted to draw out was the need to anchor a reform that you want to try and encourage people to support to something that they instinctively feel strongly about. The example Julian gave and that I wanted to talk about quite a lot as well was around adult social care. So if we want people to take adult social care reform more seriously, then it will need to be linked to relieving pressure on the NHS and thus preserving the access to healthcare that we all want and feel very strongly about. There was so much useful insight there and I think uh, leaders of public services locally and nationally will be able to take a lot from that conversation. So thank you very much for your time and don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode.